Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Uh, wanted to make you aware of a few things uh, here at the church this week. Uh, we have a, a Good Friday service at noon uh, in our sanctuary. Uh, the service uh, lasts about 30, 40 minutes, I'm told. Uh, it'll be my first one. So uh, invite all of you to come to that uh, noon on Friday. And then, of course, uh, our normal worship times on Sunday for Easter uh, you were all invited to that uh, this uh, week when obviously we concentrate uh, more specifically on Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, we celebrate his uh, conquering the grave on Sunday. So I hope you will uh, join us for that. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. <clears throat> we're going to start uh, a series today that will take us through the next couple of months on John chapters 1 through 6. Uh, it's a series, I stole this title from Harry Reader in Birmingham. He uh, did a series, uh, the first few chapters of John, called Encounters with Jesus. And it will focus on Jesus' encounter, usually one-on-one encounters, but sometimes more folks than that. He teaches us about salvation. He teaches us about himself. He teaches us about mankind and sin. And each of these different encounters, he's showing us something about who he is and what he's come to do. But before we get into those different encounters, it seems logical, I think, to, well, who is Jesus? Who is this man who flipped tables and turned water into wine and uh, called himself the satisfying bread of life? Who is he? And John answers that for us in the opening verses of his, of his gospel. Uh, who is this Jesus? Who is this person we worship and we praise and we're going to follow and understand ministry from him in these coming weeks? We ought to answer that question first. So let me read for us John 1, uh, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can trust it and believe it, that it is true. And Lord, for our uh, passage this morning that shows us that your son, Jesus Christ, is God, fully and completely God, the creator of all things, the one who became just like us to save us from our sins, and that we ought to give back all our praise and honor and glory to him. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and good king. He loved his people. He loved them dearly, but he wanted to understand them better. He wanted to understand their hardships, how they lived. So often he would dress in the working man's garb, the garb of a beggar. And he went into the homes of the poor. He visited with them, just tried to get to know them better. 
No one thought much of it. Of course, they didn't realize that he was their ruler and their king. But one time he visited a very poor man, visited him in his cellar. He ate the coarse food that the poor man ate, but the king spoke very kind and cheerful words to him. And then he left. Later, he visited him again, and he identified to this poor man who he was. I am your king. The king assumed that the man would ask for riches or for for material things. He just thought that uh, he would ask the king for for stuff, (laughs) but he didn't. The man looked at him and said, You left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food that I eat. You brought gladness to my heart. To others you've given gifts and riches, but to me you have given yourself. This, of course, in a very small way, in a very small illustration, is what Christ has done for us. He didn't just give us things. He didn't just throw things at us here. This will help life if you have more of this stuff. He gave us himself. It would be, if you can possibly imagine, becoming a lowly dog or a lowly animal. You give up the relationships, the ability, the mental capabilities, all that to become something so minuscule and so little and small. That starts to understand what Jesus did when he became man. Of course, it it doesn't touch really what he did for us. Again, he didn't just give us things. He gave us himself, and that's exactly what we needed. Understanding who Jesus is and defining that is imperative that we understand it before we look at the different stories in John chapters 1 through 6. This man who did all these miracles, these wonderful things, showed great compassion, was angry with religious leaders. Who is he? Who is this guy? This is Jesus. So three things I want us to see about Jesus from this passage. Number one, that Jesus is God. may seem obvious to all of us, but what does John say? He makes it abundantly clear, emphatically clear even, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, they are equal, same in substance, equal in power and glory, our Westminster Shorter Catechism says. You know, in in some ways it seems silly that we would spend such a short amount of time on these verses. It's chock full of hours and hours of lecture material, perhaps, that that we could consider and study. There's so much here, but let's at least give it a cursory look today. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Of course, that asks us to to remember Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning. He's co-eternal, if you will, with the Father. There's not God's really great, and he does all the good stuff, and then subservient is Christ. No, they are both God. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. It's what question six of the Shorter Catechism says. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's where I'm getting that from. It's affirming the statement that John is affirming. Jesus is God. We'll talk about why that's so important in a minute. He's eternal. He's not created. He's always been. But we also learn something else about Jesus. He's God, and he's eternal, but he's also the creator of all things. It says, by him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. Christ created, quite literally, by the word of his power. He didn't take all the stuff that was there. There wasn't anything there. (laughs) He didn't take pre-existing material and form it into stuff. There was nothing. 
It was formless and void. And all Jesus needed was his mouth and his words. Let there be light. And the word of his power created it. Let there be. Let there be. All he needed was his words. And that it made things and things came into existence as a result. I imagine a good many of you have read, and if you haven't, you've got to read the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, yes, they're a children's book, but they're, uh, they're a very powerful book, even for books, even for adults. My third favorite book, I have them all, I have a whole one through seven order in my mind. My favorite is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. My second favorite is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My third favorite is The Magician's Nephew, which is kind of the prequel, basically, to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anyway, there's a beautiful scene. Of course, it's beautiful because C.S. Lewis wrote it. The beautiful scene in The Magician's Nephew about his imagining of God, of Christ, creating the world. Let me read it for you. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed coming from all directions at once. Sometimes he thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he'd ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. And as the voice continued to sing, suddenly the blackness overheard. All at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there was nothing but darkness, and the next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leapt about, single stars, constellations, and planets. The eastern sky changed from white to pink, from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. As Diggory looked around him in the flushing glow of the newly created sun, the land of Narnia was being created by the singer's clarion voice. It was literally being sung into existence. At first, the earth appeared devoid of tree and flower, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. The earth was full of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright stood facing the rising sun. Its mouth was wide open in song. And slowly, beautifully, in swelling tones and whispered layers, the great lion sang his world into existence, tree by tree, animal by animal, creature by creature, until everything was made that had been made, and it was all very good. Well, did it happen exactly this way? No, probably not. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing to consider. <laughs> you see this lion prowling around, singing, and everything just immediately coming into existence. Perhaps it was something similar to that. What's the point? (laughs) The point is that Jesus literally, by the word of his power, created all things. He created you, and he created me, everything. And as a result of this, John gives us some effects of Jesus being God, Jesus being creator of all things. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. If anyone is to enjoy spiritual life, then it must come from God and it can be found in no other way. Adam and Eve, their spiritual life, their relationship with God the Father and God the Son, it came from Christ. Any spiritual relationship that you and I have, it's not because we figured it out, we were more clever than someone else. It was given to us by him. Any faith, 
any repentance, any obedience that we see in ourselves is from Christ. He's the light that shone into the darkness of our hearts, and he exposed the gospel. You know, I've been very convicted this past week as I've studied this passage of, of sins in my own life. Do you have sins in your life that, you know what, I just don't know that I'm ever going to be able to conquer that. I just don't think that I could ever stop doing that. I'm so, it, it's a sin that constantly entangles me. It's indwelling. I know it's wrong, but I just, I keep doing it all the time. Or maybe there's someone in your life, that person hurt me so deeply, I cannot forgive them. I can't. I don't want to. I can't forgive them. That relationship, I really would love to have that again, but it's so damaged. It's just, it can't be healed. That person is just too lost. God's grace can't possibly reach them. Have you ever considered those things? I've considered those things, particularly my own sin, this past week. I just don't think that I could ever get past that or forgive that person, so forth and so on. And so we sink into despair. We think there's no way that our marriage could improve, no way that this or that could get any better. It's because you're not trusting in the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. You think it's all up to you. i got to put on more willpower. I can do this. Just do it, Andy. Come on. You can get through this. Are you trusting in the one that created you and made you? He can give you victory over these sins. He can give you victory over the, the hardness of heart that you have towards someone. Ultimately, yes, we have the victory over sin, but there's still a presence of it in this life that trips us up and entangles us. Yes, with you, things are not possible. But if we trust in the one who was no mere man, he was God himself, everything is possible. You can have victory over that besetting sin. You can have victory over that hardness of heart and the forgiveness that you just seem like you can't give to another person. Are you asking him for this? Are you asking him for this help and this strength? Maybe it's just because you're not, because you're satisfied to be in that sin or with that anger. J.C. Ryle, uh, in his commentary on this, uh, really closes these first few verses very well. (laughs) He says, I cannot close these notes on the opening verses of St. John's Gospel without expressing my deep sense of the utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast and sublime truths which this passage contains. I've labored to throw a little light on the passage and have not hesitated to exceed the average length of these notes on account of the immense importance of this part of Scripture. But after saying all that I've said, I feel as if I've only faintly touched the surface of this passage. There's something here which nothing but the light of eternity will ever fully reveal. Point is, there is just so much here. And our finite brains can't possibly grasp it all. What a beautiful thing it is to have the faith of a child and to accept this is who Jesus is. He is God. He loves me. And everything is possible with him. There's so much more we could say, but let us move on. Number two, Jesus is man. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I want to really dwell on the last point. But Jesus is a man. Verse 14, it tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As one commentator said, this statement is one of the most significant and memorable ever penned. Its implications are limitless, 
It's provided the church over the centuries with a key to understanding the mystery of Christ, and it represents the heart and climax of the gospel. This God that we've just described, he became a man. And John says he put on flesh. The Greek word there is, is not just body or your human person, flesh and bones. It's the word sarks, which means it's talking about the whole person, your, your frailty as a person, your, your vulnerability. It's, it's all of who you are as a human being. In other words, Christ didn't just look like you and me. He didn't just have a body, though he certainly did. He shared in our existence. Our very human existence was, was just like ours. The only thing that was different is that he didn't sin. And you and I, of course, do. It also says that he dwelled among us. Quite literally, it's he tabernacled amongst us. You know, the, the children of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they set up a tabernacle, which was supposed to be the presence of God. Now we are the tabernacle. He's tabernacling within us if Christ is in us. This is the teaching of the incarnation. This great and transcendent and holy creator God put on a human existence like ours, and he dwelt among us. He became a man. He grew like us. He hungered and thirsted. He ate. He drank. He got frustrated. He got angry. He wept. He rejoiced. And he showed compassion. He prayed. He read the scriptures. He suffered. He was tempted. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And just like the man in the opening illustration, Christ became just like us. Nothing more, nothing less in his humanity. What do other religions say? What did their God do? Or what does their God do? Come on, you can do it. Do your best. As long as the good outweighs the bad, you'll be just fine. Climb the ladder up to me. Here here are the responsibilities and the commandments. Here's what I expect of you. Now go and do it. What does Jesus say? Christianity says, you can't do it. And I will send myself down to this earth to do it for you because you can't. This by no means proves Christianity as if it's a proof to to the unbelieving world, but it's absolutely a compelling feature of the Christian religion. A God who doesn't say, come on, you can do better, says, you can't do any better, I'm going to come and do it for you, have faith and trust in me. It's very unique. Jesus is God, but he's also man, but finally he's the God-man. He's both. Point number three, Jesus is the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man and the same person. Fully Fully human, fully divine. Question 21 of the Westminster Confession says, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He's two natures, human and divine, but in one person. It's a perfect blend or unity of these two things that we've just talked about. He's God and man, one person, blended together. (laughs) Now, let me use a big theological term, but stick with me, because it's very, very important, at least the concept of it. You You can forget the term, but remember the concept. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Okay? Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of that. Hypostatic means personal. Okay? The hypostatic union focuses specifically on Jesus being two natures, human and divine, as we've just said. So what's the significance? It's not just a fancy term that we like to throw around to impress people. It's 
There was no confusion in these two natures. It wasn't that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday he was God, and then the rest of the week he was human. Or sometimes he made his decisions with his humanity, and other times he made his decision with his divinity. It was a perfect blend of the two. They weren't at odds with each other. There was no confusion or separation or distinction. It was a perfect blend in one person. I hope that makes sense. And because of this, Christ exhibits an, un, as it, one commentator said, it exhibits an unparalleled magnificence. It's hard to even make your brain think about that, right? It, it starts to hurt and you get a little fuzzy. You know, what? Perfectly God and man, I don't understand. But this is of the utmost importance for us, and here's why. It's because he had to be this to save us. This is not just a neat term that people make up to sound smart. He had to be God and man in order to save us. It had to be this way, and here's why. Who is the one that broke the covenant? Man did. Man is the one that sinned, so who had to pay the price for the sin, pay the penalty? Man did. Okay? Mankind's got to pay because mankind broke the covenant. Okay? So the person who paid had to be a man. So Christ became like us so that he could reflect that. But only God can truly satisfy God, as it's often said in theological language. Only God can truly save, so he had to be both. Only God can make a satisfaction for sin. <clears throat> so it was necessary for, he to be, for him to be both. He fits the very description of our need. The coming of him in the flesh didn't save us just because he became a man. That didn't save. It's what he would do as a man that saved. In becoming one of us, Jesus Christ is fitted to the act of Redeemer. Right? He needed to be both because it met our need. Not only is he worth all of our praise because of what he's done, only he could do it. He was the only one that fit the job description. What should this tell us then about our sin? How great it must be that God would have to come and do what he did. How great it must be that he had to come and take care of it because we couldn't. It must be worse than we realize. It, it must anger him more than we realize. But what does it also tell us? He must love us more than we realize. He wasn't under an obligation to do this for us. He, he said that he would because we're his. It shows us the great hope that we have in Christ. What grounds for assurance? <laughs> Look at what he's done. It's this great and wonderful Jesus who's both God and man who's come to this world. It's the one who's going to walk around with tax collectors. He's going to hang out with the, with the unruly <laughs> of the community. He's going to call people to follow him. He's going to call people into salvation in the kingdom of God. He's going to turn tables over. He's going to teach about regeneration. He's going to reveal the true desires of the woman at the well, just as he does for us. It's our God that does these things. So what do we do for him in return? If he really is as great as we're saying he is, do we just give him some of our affection, some of our time, some of our devotion, maybe only when it's convenient to us? This God that we're going to study here in these coming months, he's great and transcendent and mighty and powerful, and he's perfect. He's so far other than we are. But he's also near, and he's loving. And he draws close to those that hurt. He's compassionate, and he's good. 
You've probably heard it said before that if our greatest need had been information, then Jesus would have sent, or God would have sent an educator or a teacher. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent an economist or, or an accountant. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So he sent us a Savior. He shows us this by giving of himself. He gave himself for us. He didn't say, well, you need some more money. You need a nicer house. Here's all this stuff that's going to improve your life. He said, you need me. Because you have a broken relationship with the Father, and the only way that that's fixable is because of me, loving me, have a relationship with me. This perfect God-man for you and for me. If you don't know him, if you're in... If you don't know him today, you're intrigued by this, and I would ask you to do the very thing that Philip is going to ask Nathaniel in our lesson for next week. Come and see. Come and see about this Jesus. Come and see who he is. Come and see what he's done for these people in these following, uh, in these following stories. Come and see this perfect unity of a God and man come to save us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for... Uh, your word today. We thank you for uh, this is a passage that's very hard to comprehend, but it's also so wonderful and majestic. Lord, that we would give you praise and glory for it. It is what it is what you deserve. Thank you so much, Lord, for becoming a man, becoming putting on mankind and human existence for us. You did it because you love us. You did it because you find worth and value to us. And, Lord, that we would in turn not boast in ourselves, but boast in you, boast in who you are. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.